Tonight you look for the living among the dead. Lord, make me a Where's he is over here? What is Rizzi? I got him, I got him, I got him, I got him. can't be serious. That is some bullshit, brother. In the beginning, in fact, we thought that really was out. Oh, God, oh, Jesus. Bullshit. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. You are not even real. Janet, Janet Wood, first time, first time caller, long time listener. Been with us since the beginning. That's me. That's me. Yeah. Nice. Um, I don't have. And we never, by the way, ever have like a natural segue into these things. I, I know. I we love sound, that. I know we sound really polished. You guys are natural. Yeah. Yeah. We just let the we just let it roll. Um, have, I like it. Do you do uh, do you do a lot of podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> Come here often. This is my second, actually. Um, oh, wow, so we're not the first. So we're getting a discount. You're not the first, but um, this is my favorite already. Yeah. Oh <laughs> shoot, she knows how to play the podcast game. Switch. Oh, oh, what do you yeah. know? Do whatever you want. Score, score. Um, why don't you just introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. My name is Janet Wood. Uh, I am, I feel like I should give my age. I'm 33 years old. Uh, they're turning everything off. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I'm a, well, transformational life coach or life coach. A lot of people, they always give me a look. So that's why I say it hesitantly. It's like, what's that? Transformational um, life coach? Yeah. Yeah. They must not be from LA. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, life, yeah. life coach is like a very, I did not know what that was until like living in LA. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah, and it's funny because now that I am one, because I remember specifically 10 years ago hearing someone say, yeah, I'm a life coach. And I totally did like eye roll. Like, that's so, <laughs> that's just so, an excuse. That just means you don't have a job. Yeah. <laughs> and 10 years later, I'm a yeah, life coach. Um, but yeah, it's my passion. But so that's one thing I do. And then I started a nonprofit called Guided Good. And we work to empower foster youth in the LA area between 18 and 26 to serve an international community in need. So that's pretty new. We just started out. Um, uh, so we're in the middle of fundraising to take our first group of foster youth to uh, Nicaragua next May. I'm curious, before we get too deep into this, um, what is it about, uh, not to like pat ourselves on the back. Uh, <laughs> oh, here it comes. What, Which what host is it do you like more? Yeah. <laughs> no. when, when we're, we're so similar. It's such an unfair. Do you like a smaller white man uh, or a giant white man? <laughs> um, what is it about like the, the thematics of this podcast spiritually mm. that interests you in terms of like where you are with your spiritual life? Yeah. Question? Damn. Oh, good one. Um, yeah, I feel like it's funny. I'm like, did I mention I'm 33? Um, uh, <laughs> we can strike that. You don't, you don't have to anymore. I've so like walked into my own identity that I now I just tell people I'm the opposite of the women who are like, I don't want to tell my age. Um, so I just go around screaming it. At the I mean, that was like the peak of Jesus's ministry. Right. That's so, true. That's true. I'm um, so proud of my age. The peak and also a low point. <laughs> also low. I, was, I would say the lowest. Glass perhaps. Uh, oh, wow. Anyway. A lot of metaphors. Um, I was raised in the church. Uh, went to church as a, a, a kid. What kind as, of church denomination? Um, non-denominational mostly. I think I did First Assembly of God when I was um, in high school. I went to Ziza Pacific yeah. University. Um, Go yep. Go Go <laughs> I've actually never mm, heard it said mm, that way. You ever heard that? <laughs> it works in many different ways. Okay, all right. Go Cougars. 33, you know. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. Um, Is it short for Cougars? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, then Go Cougars. <laughs> Went to Ziza, um, which is, oh, for those who don't know, it's a private Christian university. Um, yeah, went to church straight out of that. Um, so I remember when I went to college at APU, I was like, oh, this is, mm -hmm. this is like my time or whatever. Because it was finally my, my opportunity to kind of like leave home and grow and like, yeah. Yeah. Why, yeah, why, uh, why a Christian school? Um, you know what? To, I was a very conservative Christian high schooler, um, and I think I, I think I'm the one who brought it up to my dad. Oh, you know why? We saw the choir. You know how oh, APU had the choir. All over the place. They, they would travel, and I remember the APU choir came to the church I was going to, and it was 
beautiful. And mm. I just thought, I want to go there. And that was pretty much it. And so I also knew it was about 30 minutes away. And... Um, so you're like, I'm away. Yeah, but... I'm away enough. Mm. And I knew they had... Um, I actually auditioned for a theater scholarship oh, nice. and got it. Um, so, yeah, theater was kind of my thing back then. I did the whole thing. Um, APU Christian Theater is a weird scene. It, it is <laughs> a very <laughs> interesting scene. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of massage trains? Like, what's going <laughs> yeah, on? Yeah. <laughs> Were you there? <laughs> I, I, was at an, I was at another Christian school doing yeah, theater. Opposite coast, but nice, <laughs> similar nice, situation. Yeah. Well, and especially, too, because I wasn't necessarily... I loved musicals, but there was also the theater kids and the musical theater kids. But, yeah. So, you know, the musical theater kids were the ones walking down the hallway just, like, bursting out into song, mm. and um, it would always make me feel really insecure. <laughs> I was lifting uh, weights. <laughs> My college experience. That was always yeah. way, way more of a, uh, way more, oh, I can't even think of a, like, straight play right now. It's been so long since oh I did gosh. it. Oh, my gosh. I don't know that there aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> I meant, like, non-musical plays, but also that. Oh, uh, there is no straight <laughs> Also true. Uh, it, has, it has been amazing how, like, after... After college, like so many of the people that I did theater with at our little Christian school are like out and loud and proud yeah. yep, now. Yep, and I'm yep. like, eh, yeah, we know, but yep. like, good for you. Yeah, like, yeah, I'm yeah, glad yeah, you yeah. don't have to hide yeah, anymore. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was not even a thing we talked about back then. Maybe now. I wonder how it, was it is there like now. It was like Prop 8 happened when I was at APU. Okay. And then all yeah. of a sudden you're like, oh shit, there's people that are out at APU. Oh, wow. I didn't even know this was a conversation. Yeah, they were not allowed to come out at my school. You couldn't, you could not be openly gay. You would be kicked right, out. Right, right. You'd be that's... kicked out of the school completely, so. Yeah, yeah. That's how I remember it being, I think. Well, I don't know about being kicked out, but yeah, it was just kind of like an, uh, a no. Yeah. So right out of college, I got married, um, and that was like a whole like eight year journey too. Is he APU grad? No. Oh, he was. No, he was not. He. Um, well, funny thing is, when we met though, he was taking uh, the same film class from the same professor at Pasadena City College because that uh, professor was at both schools. Mm-hmm. So he was getting it at twenty dollars a unit, and I was getting it at it yeah. <laughs> a, yeah. a million dollars. Yeah, thirty five hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I got married really young. Um, did the whole like struggle to not have sex before marriage thing, you know, and. Were you 21? Yeah, I was 21 when I and now looking back, it's just so crazy. It's like it's like I was raised in the church and I knew what I had seen everyone else talk about, like how it's supposed to look. You know, it's like, okay, you find someone and then it's supposed to be this magical thing, and then you don't have sex until you get married, and then on your wedding night, it's like this beautiful, wonderful thing. It's, it's perfect. It's, everything's yeah. perfect, you know. And it was... Everyone knows what they're doing. Yeah, the yeah. spirit fills you with knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so I just feel like I was kind of flailing around, like not really knowing like what I believed. And oh, I thought this was... <laughs> this was like <laughs> I was like, whoa. I was just kind of no, flailing uh, around. I'm like, the Holy Spirit uh, no, no, is not no, filling no. me with knowledge. No. That's, I'm terrible uh, at this. I would, we don't have to, I would describe it differently. So <laughs> <laughs> you really want to. <laughs> no, metaphorically, I was okay. flailing around. <laughs> right. Um, right. Just like not really knowing like what I believed. I, I had kind of like adopted all this like knowledge of what I had thought I was supposed to be as like a young Christian girl who was supposed to get married and um you know we it it was just like a hot mess the the whole the whole the whole like time the whole marriage he was also a Christian he was also Christian and honestly we were just young and I don't know I've I've I meet other couples who are that young who seem to figure it all out although i know that may not be necessarily the case but looking back i just feel like i was so young i didn't know myself there was just so much more that had to be worked through but 21 yeah 21 and just like i felt like we were two stubborn people just trying to like make things work Mm -hmm. and we had all these expectations of like what marriage was supposed to look like you know i had my expectations like you have to be available for me all the time when I'm sick, you know? And then he had his expectations that, that 
I was supposed to like cook all the time, you know, and, and it's, it's not even like putting anything bad on him. It was just like, we had these huge expectations of what marriage was supposed to look like. And we just consistently were just like failing each other in that Mm -hmm. way. And yeah, it was just, it was a rough eight years. It was a lot of ups and downs. You guys made it eight years though. Yeah. Yeah. But it was, it was crazy. I love being divorced. Every year has been better than the last. And it's the only time I can say that about. And by the way, I'm not saying don't get married. If you meet somebody, fall in love and get married. And then get divorced. Because that's the best part. It's the best part. Marriage is just like a larva stage for true happiness. Which is divorce. Because you just let go. And everything's fine now. Divorce is forever. It really actually is. Marriage is for how long you can hack it. But divorce just gets stronger like a piece of oak. Nobody ever says, oh, my divorce is falling apart. It's over. I can't take it. If there's one thing I've been most passionate and cautious about in my life, it's marriage. There's a common misconception that half of all marriages end in divorce. It's really more like a third, but people love to be dramatic, myself included. But 33% is still a staggering number. If a third of all the people who went camping this year got viciously mauled by a bear, there'd be far less people loading up their Subaru with fresh gear from REI next year. Yet people walk down the fateful aisle in droves every spring, seemingly without a care in the world for what their future may hold. I swear my point isn't to bum you out or cast a cynical gaze upon the institution of marriage. I'm actually a huge romantic at heart, but I'm worried about our culture of present and future lovers. Currently, 78% of adults have been married at least once, and over 20% of adults have been divorced. More than half the country is married, and all but 5% have never been married and say they don't want to be. That means marriage is a staggeringly universal aspiration, for the most part, yet when realized, has a tendency to end in a ripple effect of broken relationships, bitterness, and despair. But why? Why is marriage so popular, powerful, and devastating. I think one of the ways to understand how powerful something is, is to take it apart, to break it. Take the atom, for example. It's not until we split the atom and created the atom bomb that we understood the power of this building block, which undergirds all creation. This is the part where I lose anyone who didn't grow up in a religious environment or doesn't currently swim in that Christ-centered spiritual pool. My apologies. 84% of Christian adults get married. 84% That means you're an incredible outsider if you never marry. That's insane to me because the man who has shaped the bulk of my faith these past five years is a 71-year-old never married man. He's wiser than any other dude I know in this world, yet even he has been treated as though his life is not yet complete. That, to me, is the pressure that drives couples to wed who have no business handling the pressure, pain, and responsibility of marriage. One of my major theories is that in Christian and religious cultures, marriage is equated with wholeness. You are not a fully developed adult until you've locked down that perfect, hot, and holy partner God created for you. This, in my mind, is the essential ingredient in idolatry. I know that's like a super Christianese word, but go with me because I think it's a really powerful way to label what happens when we set up one good thing as an ultimate thing. To circle back to the popularity of divorce, I think the reason why divorce rates and marriage rates are so high is because we've neglected friendship. I think if we aimed at friendship, some of us would be fortunate enough to land in marriage rather than the other way around where people get married because they have no friends. Ultimately, my point is that I think marriage is so difficult that very few people should do it, mainly people who understand that committing to a person means committing to being hurt, lied to, potentially cheated on, and or generally fucked over in any number of ways. And I get it. I haven't been married. I don't understand the pain of divorce. But I have watched my parents separate twice in my lifetime and spend years apart from one another, sitting just inches away from filing divorce papers. I've seen and felt a family fractured by addiction, deception, and abuse. So I get that much. And I know it doesn't take a Bible verse for you to understand that God, or anyone else for that matter, doesn't wish that on anyone. One last thought. Celibacy. Part of what you hear in Janet's story is that sexual purity plays a big part in waiting for the ideal Christian marriage. You'll also hear that infidelity played a crucial role in breaking up that Christian marriage. I can't 
count the number of times I've heard this story. I believe an overemphasized esteem for sexual activity is one of the most devastatingly cancerous misunderstandings in the Christian church today. There's so much more to say on this topic, but we'll get to that in the next episode with our friend Johan. Anyway, let's get back to Janet's story. There's so many directions I can go right now <laughs> to what, what, from that. What do you think was like the pivotal takeaway from that relationship? Um, you no know, eight years is a long time to sum up. But yeah, yeah. Was it just too young or was it? I, I think too young. I think that there were a lot of issues too that um, that I hadn't looked at myself. And this is why I'm a coach now actually because if I really like break it down – when I came out of that four years ago, I just was like devastated by like a failed marriage, you know, uh, living in a lot of shame of, of actions I had taken and just a lot, a lot of shame. And just I went like, what on earth like happened? What went wrong? Like, why? How did I find myself here? And I remember too, um, like a few days after our separation, calling my mom and literally saying like, what is my life? Mom? Like, I don't even what this isn't me, you know, mm-hmm. th- that I've found myself here. And I was like, like a good Christian girl, you know, and like, and somehow I've failed. Um, and I had to go, what, what have I been too arrogant to see? And actually, that's what I ended up doing. Um, Celebrate Recovery a little bit. My dad after, is yeah. super involved in Celebrate yeah, Recovery. Yeah. yeah. And I, I loved it. I think it's just a great forum to kind of um, really process and not feel alone during mm-hmm. something that's so difficult to deal with. And, you know, it's a lot like AA. So you're supposed to yeah. say like, um, hi, my name is Janet right. and I'm in recovery for blank. And so I remember that being like difficult for me. Like, I don't know what I'm in recovery for. Yeah. It's like, mostly about like addiction. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. And I wasn't like an alcoholic. I wasn't like, um, you know, deal- struggling with any like, um, like destructive behavior or yeah. any sense. But then I was, uh, long story short, I ended up, um, cheating on my husband Mm -hmm. so to me I was just like how did I find myself here like most people were like I would never have thought that you would do that so I had to go what blinded me so much that I wasn't able to see that before it came Mm -hmm. so I ended up you're allowed to like change the your intro all the time and I said I think I said uh, I'm in recovery for being uh, arrogant and that was pretty Mm -hmm. much the only like like way I could pinpoint like where I wasn't able to see it because I had this attitude throughout the whole marriage of like, I know what I'm doing. We know what we're doing. We've got this. Don't worry about us. Like I've got everything under control. I don't need anyone's help. And that was like, in my mind, what that general way of being, that general attitude, that general like thinking is what, uh, allowed it to self-destruct. Um, so it was so humbling to like walk into celebrate recovery and have to say, like, just swallow my pride and be like, I failed. Right. And just the simple act of of being willing to admit it that I need other people, mm-hmm. that uh, like I can't do this on my own, and and it it totally goes against what I thought my faith was because obviously if you're a believer, you know, in Christ, the whole idea is like. Like, I'm not doing this alone. I have someone with me. I'm giving it up. I'm letting Jesus take the wheel, whatever, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> um, so obviously my life did not parallel that in any way. Um, so there, that's what I can pinpoint it to, honestly. Did you have a community reaction? What yeah. What was your spiritual life like well, surrounding that issue? I, I will say that when I read, that was one thing that I was really happy in general as far as my personal community Mm -hmm. everyone was really like loving and helpful and accepting um I kind of feel like I I am lucky in this way that I kind of (laughs) I kind of just went back to church like well this is me you either have to accept it or you don't, you know. Right. Um, so I remember when I started going back to church because I hadn't for like a couple of years. There was a couple of years where we just kind of stopped going to church when we were married. And um, I walked back into church and I feel like I don't know if there was judgment. I mean, sometimes I felt it, but, you know, maybe I just kind of avoided certain conversations having known what the church is like um, yeah. and um, yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I, I think that in general, yes, like, 
uh, it can often feel like not not necessarily after infidelity, but just in general being like divorce, like that word too is just right. so like divorce, you know, and and walking around it, it did take me a while to really work through like not feeling like I had like the letter A on my chest. Yeah. What do you, what do you think if you you and your husband had stopped going to church for a while? Why yeah. do you think? Uh, what made you go back? Um, the the humility of it, like mm. just realizing, I thought I could do this on my own, and I I can't, and I need to accept that. Um, and for me, that meant going back to church, even if, cause at that point too, there was probably some like hurt of the church, you know, and stuff like that. But I just went back in going, all right, I need to get over that. Um, and granted, you know, um, a few years down the road, I'm still like trying to grasp and understand what my role is in church and what role church plays in my life. And there's right. that whole thing. But as far as that moment in my life, I just knew I needed like a support group and I didn't really have it, you know, so I knew that church would provide that for me. Um, and granted, I, I did my own share of hiding too, of like trying to like, like meet people without having to tell them, you know, like yeah, you know, sure. what my history is, um, you know, so, and probably a lot of that comes from knowing like how being raised in the church and knowing what people would think, you know, and there were times where I said a little bit too much too soon Right. And I'd get kind of like that awkward, uh, oh, oh walk away, hey, you know? Yeah. And then I was like, you have a past. Damn it, I Janet. I don't know how to handle this. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's funny because I feel like, um, I feel like that's, there's a lot of people using that strategy when mm -hmm. approaching mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. And I think you can do it that way. I always went the other way. I think people have a tendency yeah. to go one or two, yeah. like really hard ways. They kind of, they try to reserve things and keep things on the DL right. or just like throw everything out as fast as possible. Right, right. And it's like, if it scares you away, I'm not interested in you anyway. Exactly. But if it doesn't, then like you yeah. must be cool. It's kind of like using it as a, yeah. Totally, totally. And I always, I mean, I, I saw that in my pattern of behavior. I've always done that, but especially like showing up at Mosaic and stuff. Anytime I've gone into a new church community, I still catch myself doing it. Yeah. Like I'll make, just making light of like, uh, like my drinking or like right. sexual indiscretions or whatever. Right, just like right. make jokes about it as fast as possible. Right. Put it so all out know. there, and it's like you yep. either deal with it or you don't. Yep. The prerogative is yours. Yep. I I dated a girl for a while, a little over a year, who actually hmm. cheated on me, and we both went to Mosaic, mm. and. That was a horribly painful. I'd never had that happen before, and yeah. it was like, oh, we're like the Christian couple, and we're yeah. gonna be good and all this stuff. And we crossed our own amount of lines, and I 100% should have seen it coming. Mm. But I'm interested as someone that's been in recovery, what you think about people kind of recovering in the same space? Like, mm. if you guys went to the same church yeah. and you had what happened happen, how do you do that? Like, yeah. how do you both go to the same place? Yeah, because she basically. It wasn't like I was like, yo, bitch, leave. Right, right. But it was, um, I felt that in my heart 100%. I mm. didn't want her around. Mm. I just didn't talk to her. But yeah. then I had friends that knew her and would say, I'm like, oh, I saw so-and-so. Right. And I'd just be like, cool. Yeah. I hope she stops going here. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't yeah. ever verbalize that. Sure, but, but you feel it in your you heart. You feel it. Yeah, and I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm sure like every time she saw me, all she could think of was like her indiscretion and my judgment. And yeah. your friends probably hate me. And we tried to reconcile down the road sure. a bit. And that was what she told me like I just feel like everybody that you know probably hates me mm. um yeah I mean I I feel lucky in that area too that you know it just kind of naturally worked that since we had both stopped going to church for two years you know I knew that um that I could go back to church and, and he wouldn't be there and I think he's mm. he's probably attending a different church um but yeah, that's, that's a difficult one. I mean, you really do have to like come to a place where you forgive each other in a way that like it releases both of you because otherwise it, it's like tarnishing, um, that experience. And then that's the whole question. Like, okay, what is church supposed to be? You know, right. like what, you know, what's your role to church? What's church's role to you? Like it, it brings up all of that. Um, you know, because I feel like churches played different roles at different points in my life, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and at that time, I needed, like, 
um, I needed a place and I'm sure he needed a place as well, like to just go and like be himself and heal. And um, so I don't know. That's tough. Do you think he would have kept going to the same church if he was there? Probably not. Yeah. Do you think that there's um? Do you think that this is an issue in the church that's a much bigger issue than anybody really wants to talk Mm -hmm. about? Do you Mm -hmm. think that there's, I mean, not just like, I I know multiple couples that I I watched them fall in love in college, Mm -hmm. I watched them get married, and now they're getting divorced. Yeah, 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 we're about Uh, that age where that's happening all the time. Yep, it's like it's it seems like it's kind of a predominant thing in the Christian community. There's this, it's this. Yeah, there's something poisonous about this whole like you're not allowed to have sex until you get married. So people are like, let's get married, and like there there's like a rush to jump into this lifelong commitment thing and then there's not this foundation laid of how do we make this work because when you right. get married that young you like you said you really can't know who you are right so do you think this is a much bigger issue in the church people struggling with a young marriage um people uh sexual infidel- infidelity or mm-hmm. cheating or mm-hmm. there's all this stuff that's not being talked about and yep. how do you like how should we be dealing with yeah. this? How should we be talking about okay, it? Okay, this is why I am a transformational coach and why I love this work. Because um, I realize that it all starts in my head. Um, any sort of... Okay, this is at least... Actually, this is not just about infidelity. This is about everything. Your expectations, you know. Um, I... I see now how cloudy my head was filled at 21 years old and how I was like projecting all this, like these ideas and vision of what marriage would look like, what he would be for me um, and all that. And then I, if we have to constantly be like filtering those thoughts, we can't just let those thoughts like live in our brain. Mm -hmm. And I know now that that's what I'm doing because now I'm working. So I'm dating someone else now. And so like anytime I'm starting to project, I feel myself doing that, like projecting like, oh, this is what it's going to be like. You know, Mm -hmm. I catch myself. I go, okay, let's get first of all, get back to reality, not to like, like pop my bubble or whatever, but like just okay, what's the reality of the situation? Who can he be for me? Can I allow him to be himself and not um, try to fix him or make him be someone else? Like, can I love him for who he is? And so I'm constantly reigning in my thoughts. Um, That has to do a lot with um, infidelity too. I mean, I didn't just go, uh, whoops. (laughs) Like, Like it started in my head. It started with like, you know, and I know... I guess this is why I'm on this podcast, but it's, <laughs> but like, yeah, it starts with a text, you know, I get a text from a guy who's like interested and I'm like, oh, he likes me, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't know that. And like, you know, I was, tw- since I hadn't really dated anyone before my ex-husband, like I didn't really get to experience, you know, like what it felt like to really be liked by a lot yeah, of like getting, people. Yeah, like getting wooed. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so that like messed with me. And then I started to imagine, you know, and so then I let those thoughts continue, you know. Um, and then, I mean, I cheated in my head long before I ever cheated in real life, hmm. you know. Um, so now that I know that, that that's where it starts and that it lives up here. I mean, okay. So yeah, if we're going to go back to the church, I think, um, I would love to bring more. This is why I'm so grateful. I mean, I became a coach because of, uh, I'm going to sh- put a little plug in for my coach, uh, Aaron Anastasi, but I, um, actually I can thank Mosaic for this actually, because at Terra Nova two years ago or the last Terra Nova that happened, mm-hmm. they did a leading your life, um, workshop and it was with Adrian Kaler and Aaron Anastasi. And, um, I feel like I learned more about self leadership and like understanding my thoughts in that workshop than I had growing up in the church my whole life. Um, and really they're all like biblical principles, you know, like renewing your mind, like, capturing every thought you know but we are so like um flippant with the way we allow like thoughts to enter our head and we allow them to live there you know and it's not bad if those thoughts come in but it's bad if we like create them and allow them to be our story like our new truth you know so this is in my mind what i try to have a lot of conversations with women now you know especially if if they're going through something i did in the past or 
um, they're struggling with expectations of, you know, their, um, their significant other or, um, or anything, or they, you know, whether it's infidelity or whatever, it's like, what's, what's happening in your head? You know, Mm -hmm. like, um, this, this is to me like the solution to like so much. Um, and also like realizing that what I did was also, there was so much like that hadn't been taken care of, whether it was like me loving on myself, you know? So if I felt like I wasn't getting enough love, you know, at home, you know, and then I went seeking somewhere else, like I feel like, but I didn't know, I didn't know to like deal with that, you know, I didn't know what's happening, you know? Um, so, but it starts with, I mean, if I can, it starts with humility, right? Honestly, you know, why do you, why do you think this is such a hard thing for Christians to talk about? Why do you think Christians don't want to deal with this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, cause I feel like I'll, I'll single us out. Like sure. we have a really hard time with this. Yeah. Like, um, it almost seems like non-Christians it's, re- it's reflected in, uh, entertainment. It's reflected in comedy. Yeah. It's reflected in everything. It's like non-Christians will talk about like, uh, well, I mean, I can look, but I can't touch. Like right, I, right. they'll like they'll talk right. about their feelings. Right. I know. I know men who are like, oh, well, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. Like I, there's tons right. of hot girls. Like right. And like they'll have conversations that Christian men won't have. Right. 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 And like I don't. Why is it so hard for us to just right like be human beings about this? Mm-hmm. It's obviously hard. Monogamy is super hard. Right. Like we're all. It it feels counter. It feels counter to, right. to like biological design so much of the time. Yeah. I, I think that is exactly part of it. I mean, just that you can't even, as a Christian guy, probably, you probably can't even feel like you can say that. Like, I you, do, but yeah. I, feel like, <laughs> I, like, I feel like a lot of people aren't. Like, that's part, that's part of what I'm so saying. Like, I'm not dating Christian people. people yeah, right. it's, it's like, I get, I get caught in this world where people... Yeah. People are like, oh, Dan, you're like, you're, you're, you're just so vulnerable and raw. And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to be, I want this to be like the norm. Right. Right. Like, right. I don't, I don't right. want to be seen as vulnerable and raw. I feel like these are the conversations that people are supposed to have. Yeah, exactly. I, I, ha- I feel like I have these kind of conversations all, all the time because I am partially naturally vulnerable, but also now with all the transformation I've been doing in my life, I realize how valuable it is to be vulnerable and, you know, now it's becoming hip, you know, because yeah, Brene Brown. Yeah. You're on the shelf. Yeah, <laughs> on the shelf right there. Brene Br- Brown comes out with all of her books about, you know, the power of vulnerability and all this stuff. And so I, that makes me really happy, actually, because I feel like people are starting to understand the the effects of not being vulnerable. And that's where shame comes in. That's where judgment comes in. You know, like anything you're seeing right now, like that's happening in our political landscape is because of a fear of vulnerability. I'd like to take a step back and approach this topic from another angle. When I was a kid, my dad was a missionary, a really good one. When I was born, before I was a year old, we moved to Thailand so he could work with trafficking relief efforts for women and children in the slums of Bangkok. My first memories are outside my dad's office building, buried in the trash-covered ghettos of the Din Dang district, a housing project nestled into river clongs that were home to about 100,000 people. When I was seven, my dad relocated us to Phnom Penh, Cambodia to fill a role as a country coordinator, which basically meant being the organizational leader for every missionary in the country. Cambodia had been savaged by war and the brutal regime of the Khmer Rouge, and it was still remarkably violent and unstable. There were few paved roads, more landmines than people, and a precariously unstable government. He built the country's first Bible school and organized efforts between dozens of missionary projects and orphanages all across a country populated by Kalishnov-carrying teenagers. He was on a mission from God. Though this is decreasing rapidly within the church, missionaries used to survive and work through a financial system known as raising support. The old school tradition was that most Christians here in America understood that not everyone could commit their lives to missionary service, so they would pool some resources together to fund the ones who were willing to go into the world and give the good news. So missionaries would spend time in America performing a cross-country tour called itineration, in which he would go speak at a church in an attempt to drum up the finances necessary to work overseas. My dad was excellent at this. He learned to speak watching Southern Pentecostal revivalists and inner-city black preachers. He was a powerful speaker, utilizing a big, booming voice and shaking his finger towards the heavens. But his real tour de force? His testimony. 
My dad had a hundred stories about being an orphan, a drug dealing ski bum, a violent money launderer, and a literal Caribbean pirate, all before Jesus saved his life and sent him to work in the war-torn jungles of Indochina. I watched crowd after crowd, Sunday after Sunday, in towns across America, eat it up. Cha-ching! Don't mishear me. We were never wealthy. Dad raised enough support for us to live in a country where a bottle of Coke was a penny. And my dad was never dishonest. He wasn't lying. He was a bona fide badass. His stories were true. They were just incomplete. Behind the scenes, my parents' marriage was falling apart. My dad worked 80 to 90 hour weeks every single week without fault. I dreaded having my dad home, which was rare, but it meant I had to tiptoe around the house for fear of stress-induced explosions of anger. My parents fought every single day. My mom was miserable. She hated Cambodia, a feeling she could never express as it would undermine the cause, and she considered leaving my dad constantly. I had virtually no relationship with my father. I do not remember time spent together, kind words of encouragement, or hugs. When we finally left Cambodia, when I was nine, my father came to the realization that he was a crippling workaholic, and he went to counseling, but he almost lost everything. My dad's unflinching loyalty to the field made him a missionary MVP, so nobody ever stopped to ask if he was taking care of his wife, his son, his friendships, his soul. Because of course he was. He was doing the Lord's work, right? I share this long roundabout tale because I have witnessed firsthand the sort of crisis Janet is talking about. In America, and particularly in the church, we have a severe vulnerability problem, and it is ruining lives. This is a tricky issue because the church and our culture appear to praise vulnerability and will extol public speakers, teachers, and famous leaders for being so raw and transparent. We love people who will honestly share a testimony filled with pain, mistakes, ups and downs and defeats. However, listen to the language when you hear these validations. Really pay attention to the time and place they are used. Often what we are actually loving is a false vulnerability that comes with hindsight at being able to talk about a defeat long after the fact because we have since overcome the consequences. When people express struggles they are currently wrestling with, see if you notice a difference. Are pastors able to talk about their doubts about God? Can church leaders have crises of faith? Do young couples feel they have the space to talk about the concerns, frustrations, and worries, or do they feel they have to appear healthy and happy at all times? Perfect. Can we talk about our insecurities, our envy, and our comparison? Or will that make people think we are broken and weak? Can we talk about the addictions we continue to wrestle with? Or are we only comfortable talking about those vices we haven't touched in years? We love talking about how dirty we were, but then how can we help one another become clean? It's easy to hear a story like Janet's and think of it as being an outlier, an exception of the norm. But let's be honest, that could happen to any of us. I have a history and a continued pattern of addictive behavior and substance abuse, an on-again, off-again consumer relationship with sexuality and pornography, a crippling fear of intimacy and commitment, and a past littered with poor choices I still look over my shoulder at, hoping they won't rear-end me like a truck on the freeway. And don't think that telling you that doesn't scare the shit out of me. By the way, my dad made a remarkable recovery. We still talk about the wounds of my youth, but I am so proud of my dad for learning to express his struggles in the faith that he will be loved through them. He's learned to accept criticism and compassion. It should be noted that he doesn't put up the missionary numbers that he used to. His spiritual repair changed the way he spoke, the way he told his story, and it directly affected his budget. But it saved his marriage, renewed his relationship with his son. We all want to be loved. The most poisonous lie is that we have to be perfect to deserve it. But if we were perfect, it wouldn't be love at all. Cool. Back to Janet. I mean, if you look at the reason why Brene Brown's, like, the power of vulnerability is becoming so big is because we've been a culture where we don't allow ourselves to be vulnerable. Um, and to me, that kind of parallels. Like, I think people are... are waking up and I don't know necessarily what it was like yeah I think I think like the pressures on people are so much more the fear there's like a lot more fear I, I read some study that said that after 9-11 like just the amount of fear that people experience mm. like 
has just like continue to go up, you know, whether it's about their own personal life, like how long they're going to be here, whatever. Um, and yeah, if you look at cultures, a lot of cultures in Europe, you know, they're a little more present and they know how to just, they're fine, like not working three months out of the year and just being, you know? Um, so I think it's a, it's a fine balance, you know, cause I'll, I'm not necessarily when I coach someone, um, trying to help them just change the world until they learn how to actually be happy where they're at right now and learn to be completely present because that's the only energy you can work from to actually be able to do any of those things if that's what you want to do yeah Mm -hmm. um so sometimes like a powerful like coaching experience or for for me too is just actually completely flipping my current situation and realizing how great i have it that, that to me sounds way more attractive than a lot of the coaching I've experienced or heard of where mm. the coaching is like, you are bound by nothing. You have limitless potential. You could do. And I'm like, I think so. Mm-hmm. But I love Richard Rohr. And one of the mottos mm-hmm. he's been going through this past week is like a mantra of live simply so that others may simply live. Yep. Like, God, help me to just live simply so I others can that. simply live. And I'm like, that level of simplicity I feel like gets undermined and devalued yep. all the time. So it's like, well, whatever. If he wants a small life, he can do that. Right, and right. I fucking hate that. Yeah. I've heard my the guy who's like my mentor and father figure, super simple life. Like super yep. simple life, yet he's had a deep impact socially. Yeah. Not written a book, doesn't have a podcast. Yeah. Not hanging out in Hollywood social circles. Yeah. Not out there grinding. Right. Um, well, and he, he probably doesn't have that lie um, uh, in his head just kind of floating around that he he needs to be greater than right. he is or anything like that because he he dismisses that you know and i wonder too how much um you know m- movies affect like you know all <laughs> all good movies today are about like the hero and like oh, yeah. you know and changing the world right so i mean that's that's i mean sure like today but i mean that's that's what narrative is right that's that's exactly. what stories are exactly it's like somebody um, somebody rising to an occasion right. is kind of the most classic form right. of narrative arc. Yeah. I just think what you were rising to is always sensationalized. Exactly. So you don't think of rising as like, oh, getting my life back together and having a stable community after a divorce. Right. No one's like, oh, right. the trumpets and battle sequence right. as she's just slowly having a coffee with a friend. Exactly. You know? Exactly. <laughs> like, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, that's, that's essentially what Sideways is. That movie oh. did really well. <laughs> like, I mean, I think indie films are doing the subtle. Right, yes. Right, right, yeah. Right, right. There is that. There is like the subtle exploration, and I think that's because. I think there has been a bit of a reaction to like, we're not all going to be, um, we're not going to all be Armstrong walking on the moon. Right. We're not all going to be uh, writing tomes of our generation. Some of us are just going to have to like live the best life we can and affect the people around us the best we can. If you break out of that, it's, it's a cherry on top of a cake, but if you don't get the cherry, you can't bemoan the cake. Right. You know? And I think that's like, there's that documentary, um, happy where like some sociologists studied the happiest people in the world. And they're typically like, it's like lower income, third world people, um, they looked at people in India, they looked at people in Africa. These people don't have tons and they're not necessarily obsessed with legacy, but they do have yeah. rich social lives mm-hmm. and um, like rich love lives. And that contributes to that sense of well-being, that yeah. sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, it's hard to... You're, you're 100% right, Colton, because I've heard that same refrain yeah. of like, you can have a small life. I mean, I got that, Mm -hmm. I mean, I got that from the church community where like, and then then you got Jesus smacked on top. Yeah. And Jesus wants you to have a fucking, Jesus wants you to have a huge (laughs) life. Jesus wants you to make an impact. And then like, I'm like, I'm not making an impact. I'm I'm, I'm just, I'm just like, uh, I'm just a bartender who's like struggling with his artistic crafts. Like what? Oh my God. And time is going by and I'm getting older. (laughs) I'm 33. Oh oh, oh, no. Yeah. And like it, yeah. you get really spun out. It's really easy to do in a city like this. So, yeah, yeah you're born and raised in LA. Yeah. So do you? I mean, and you've traveled a lot. So is there something pervasive about? I don't want to bag on LA culture. That's sure. so overdone. But is there? Some, every city has like a unique vibe and culture. What is it having been in this your whole life and then mm. going out and coming back? 
Yeah. Is there anything do you think that this city does? Is a city that's kind of creating the future? Um, yeah, and it's funny there's different cultures within LA too, but um yeah. I'd say um when I do travel, I I always do feel like I exhale a lot because hmm. I feel like oh, I could just hang out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, it's like and even when I went yeah. to it's we we have such a bad habit of like bashing the parts of this country that aren't New York, LA, like right, the major right. cities, but you go to a place, uh, you go to North Carolina, you go to some of the middle states where it's people aren't measuring themselves by their jobs. Yeah. Like they have a job yeah. so that they can like hang out with their family. Right. And it's, it, it is a different speed. Yeah. I've definitely noticed that. And it is, it is nice. Yeah. To yeah. Just like, Oh, nobody really seems to care. Yeah. Nobody's asking me like, "What are you working on? What yeah, are you doing?" Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'm wondering since you went, but you and I went to the same college, and I think I took more classes and lectures and conferences and chapels about finding your calling. Yeah, that's like a oh. humongous buzzword in that Christianity. Term. Is like you got to find your calling, which yeah. seems like, "Oh, I need a life coach to help me find my calling." Really? But then the calling is always dismissed as, "What does God want for your life?" Right. And you detach yourself from any individual desire. Yeah. I mean, that's so, yeah, yeah. I, the same thing about what's God's will. Right. You know, um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that puts a lot of, it's all the people behind it have like the right intentions. But I think when we hear that over and over again, as Christians, it, all it does is it freezes up, freezes us because Mm -hmm. we do think like, what is it? What is it? You know? And maybe like a small percentage of people will hear like yeah. specifically yeah. An audible what, word <laughs> what they're supposed to do yeah. before the rest of us. I've never, you know, I, I've never personally, um, heard God say, you need to be doing this, mm-hmm. you know? So it was kind of like, I had to go back to the Bible and really understand the truth, you know, and not just hear that buzzword, like what's your calling, yeah. you know, what's God's will, you know, like I had to understand that God's with me and behind me, no matter what I choose. I, I feel like intrinsically we all want to serve people in some way, mm. even if that's like um, it on the side or if it's through our job, whatever, you know, like because intrinsically I feel like anytime we do, we we derive joy from that, you know, whether it's um, a volunteer project or, you know, for me, every time I have a really good conversation with someone and I feel like the light bulb go on, right. like there's so much it's so rewarding for me and i and i feel like that's when god's like like hey this is i created you to do this you know but i'd never knew that you know mm-hmm. like but i just feel this sense of like oh i'm i'm in my sweet spot <laughs> right. you know um but i don't necessarily think it's good to focus on just what's what's your calling you know cuz Hmm. your calling could change every five years you know (laughs) it's also not really like it's not really in the bible very much like there's not really a lot of time dedicated to that sense of like what job does god want you to do it's basically like uh you know when jesus does talk about it it kind of just focuses on other people and being involved with other people and loving other people and like when paul gets a little more specific about like um even taking like taking the word of Christ out, mm-hmm. it's never like there's there's just not a lot of discussion about like what are you yeah. supposed to do with your life, right? Right. So, yeah, I mean that's where it does come down to like loving God and loving people. We like to wrap it up with the thought of if you could communicate anything about um, faith, God, spirituality. Uh, I kind of want to make it a little bit broader for you just because you have an interesting story and I think you have an inspirational story. If there's anything, because um, you kind of, you kind of, you had to rebuild your life and you had to start over and it was scary and you wrestled with questions of age and all kinds of things. Um, so you can answer that first part, but also in addition, if you could say anything to, uh, to like young women mm. who might be kind of wrestling through some of the stuff you had to wrestle through. Yeah. yeah. That's good. That is really good. Um, 
Not that you aren't still a young woman. No. Like you're, 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 <laughs> no. You aren't on the other hey, side. Hey, I've accepted it. You, I'm, so, I'm just a little but grandma. But you know, you know like, you, like women who, yeah, yeah, girls yeah. who don't know anything yet. There's no. a 45 year old out there like, fuck this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I love that question because that is my heart. Like whenever I do, I, I, what I want to say is, um, that just be open, be, be open to learning. I think being vulnerable and open to learning is the most valuable tool you can have going into, um, crazy new life experiences, um, especially at that age. Um, uh, yeah. And be open to what God can do. Any, anytime you hear yourself say like a definitive statement, like, Oh, that's not me, or that's just who I am, or I can't possibly do that to, to really question it and just take some time to really, to really ask yourself, is that true? Um, what, what am I blinding myself to? Um, um, and, you know, I think, you know, if there's any air of arrogance, which is what I personally dealt with, I would want to ask myself, like, what are you afraid of? You know, um, to kind of break down that wall. Like, what what are you afraid of? Because the moment you can just kind of come to peace with what you're fearful of, then, like, it, the rest just kind of melts away. Um yeah, be open. Be open to what God can do. Don't put him in a box. That sounds so cliche, but the 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 further I get into my faith, the more I realize, man, I really like just assume God works this way. And the moment I just ask Him to do this thing, He's like, "Yeah, I've been waiting for you to ask." You know, hmm. so be open to what God can do in your life and how He can heal you from any past wounds, because um, that's where we can get really stuck. Is like oh, but I was treated this way. I went through this abuse. You know, I went through that. Like, be open to allowing God to really heal that. And he'll do it. So. Amen. Yeah. That's think, great. I think I need a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, where can yeah. people find your stuff? Yeah, yeah. So the freedombrand.co is my website. I have a little blog there. Um, and uh, my nonprofit, if anyone's interested, we are raising money, guidedgood.org. You can go there. I'm on, on, on all the social meds. Um, so find me at Janet Lee Wood uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm going to go ahead and I'll go out on a limb and say that uh, there's a lot of people who are like, well, I don't know if I want to like give tithe to a church. I don't know if they <laughs> yeah, yeah. So consider donating your tithe or whatever you would donate. Consider donating that to, uh, yeah. to that charity. Yeah. Boy, yeah. churches, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I donate my tithe to charities all please, the time. Please, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for Thank coming on. Thank you guys Thanks, for having me. That was yeah. Awesome.